Thank you very much. Uh, as Nathan said, we're going to be looking again tonight at the first letter of John. We're looking at it for a while in the morning, but the two kind of things we're talking about today, what's well, the same thing, it's really all about the spirit of Antichrist, about Antichrist. And so I thought it'd be wise just to do both of these on the one day. Um, so we're going to begin reading from 1 John chapter 2 and from verse 18. And we read, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need, do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And then chapter 4 from verse 1. We read, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let's just pray. And Father, we pray tonight that, that we'll have that kind of clarity and focus that John speaks of here. That we will recognize your truth as it comes to us and that we will determine in our lives to hold on to that central truth about Jesus, his death for us, his identity as the Son of God. Lord, teach us more of this Jesus, we pray, and we ask this in his name. Amen. 
Well, just to, to say that over recent months, we've looked in, in some detail at the false teachers John had to face in New Testament times. This morning, though, we began to, to get to grips with that which lay beneath the surface of their teaching, that which inspires not only their false teaching, but all false teaching, every attack on Christ and his church right down through the ages. That is, we were brought face to face with Antichrist, perhaps best described as the, the devil's main weapon, his main strategy of attack against the church. And there were various things we, we took note of regarding Antichrist. For instance, the fact that in the Bible, Antichrist is spoken of both as a spirit, as here in First John, yet in other places, such as Second Thessalonians 2, 3, Antichrist is also seen very much as an individual, as a man. It says there, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. However, the way that, that it was suggested that all this would seem to, to fit together is in that, as it says here in 1 John 2.18, the last hour, the last days, which I believe stretches from Christ's first coming to his second coming, that is, we are now in the last days. In these days, then, the spirit of Antichrist is very much at work. At work in the way that, that the name suggests, at work opposing Christ, at work counterfeiting Christ. However, as these last days reach their climax, as the ultimate end itself is almost upon us, well then the Bible would seem to suggest that we can expect one final intensification of evil and one final terrible manifestation of evil. That is Antichrist in human form. We also noted this morning that the, the devil's usual focus of attack via Antichrist is on the nature, is on the deity, the being of Christ, with it usually being his Godhead that comes under most attack. And the list of groups that that used by Antichrist to press home this attack is really a kind of theological rogues gallery, ranging right from these Gnostics in John's time through groups like, like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses to theological liberalism, which continues to sap the faith of God's people today. And to bring this right home, this attack is, is coming at the evangelical church at the moment, I believe, from a section, not all, but a section of what is called the emerging church, who claim to be evangelical, but who actually are unrecognizable in their beliefs in terms of any previous understanding of what an evangelical is. But why, though, is it that the church, or at least some within the church, seem to be so susceptible to deception in this way? Why? Because the Antichrist 
disguises this lie that is fed. And the pattern we find here in First John is an illustration of, I believe, what's been continually repeated throughout history. 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they come from God. Because many false spirits, false prophets, have gone out into the world. You see, the false teachers of John's time also, as we've seen, that they wrongly set experience over doctrine, over a foundation of a right understanding of Christian truth. And it would seem that the way that they, they managed to get acceptance for this, for their philosophy and all the heretical teaching that flowed from it, was by means of prophecy. And probably a pretty dramatic, ecstatic, spectacular display of prophecy at that. What it would seem happened was that the, the gullible, the naive among God's people, watched this going on. And impressed by the show, by the dramatic, by the spectacular, won over by the atmosphere. So they decided that what these men said must be true but all without any further examination of the actual content of what they said. That's why John says what he does in verse 1 of chapter 4, test the spirits, test the prophets. That's the way the Antichrist worked in, in John's day. And it is almost the same process we see repeated in at the heart of every heresy throughout history. Those who in one way or another claim an extra biblical revelation from God. Who get the gullible to believe in that revelation by the way they sell it, by the way they dress it up. But then once they've got them to believe the lie, they then use the lie to lead them away from God. However, as we've said, all of this could be so easily avoided if only we took the advice of John here to test the spirits. And the advice of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, where he tells us to weigh, that is to test prophecy. But how do we do this? How do we test a teacher? How do we test a teaching to see whether it is of Christ or Antichrist? Well, we looked a little bit again this morning at some basic general rules for discerning whether a teaching is of the Lord or not, whether a prophecy is of God or not of God. And that is, does it emerge from God's word? Or is it at least in harmony with God's word and character? And also a few weeks ago, we looked at three tests of a teacher that were very much grounded in the character of the teacher himself and also in the, in the character that was seen to be produced in the life of his followers. That is, we look then at the test of obedience. Is this person personally obedient to the moral lifestyle demands of the gospel? The test of love, does he, does he demonstrate God's unique love, a love for the unworthy, the ungrateful, the undeserving? And the test of values. Does this person in their life put first the things of God or is it the things of this world? What are their values? What are their priorities that show what actually comes first for them? However, the test we're going to look at now 
are a bit more searching than these. For those character-centered tests, what they did was they helped us to discern whether or not a teacher and a teaching was worldly. What the tests we're going to look at now, I think at least begin to help us to do, is to discern whether or not a teacher or a teaching is to some degree or other satanically inspired. So what are these tests? The first one is the test of experience. 1 John 2.20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. But, but you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, but haven't we just spent a fair bit of time over the last few weeks establishing that one of John's main criticisms of these false teachers he encountered was the very fact that they valued experience more than doctrine. So what do we mean then when we come in here with the test of experience? Well, the key here lies, I believe, in the main experience-oriented word that John uses, anointing. So what does John mean when he uses that word, well, you know, the experts look into all these things. They come up with a variety of suggestions as to what John actually means when he talks of an anointing. And some say that this perhaps refers to the, the gift of the Spirit. And it's not hard to see why they say this. For in his gospel, John says that the Holy Spirit in John sixteen thirteen will guide us into all truth. Just as here he says that this anointing will enable us all, not just some, but all Christians, to know the truth. However, I don't believe that this in isolation, the gift of the Spirit, can in itself be what John means here. It can't be. Because he's criticized repeatedly in this letter those who claim to have inside knowledge via the Spirit, apart from doctrine. So I hardly think then that he would advise these Christians here to rely on their, albeit superior, hotline to the Spirit. Indeed, actually, I've got to say, I don't think that the claimed witness of the Spirit is ever in itself an adequate test of truth or an adequate means of guidance. Of course, this can be of great value, that inner witness of the Spirit, but not, I believe, in isolation. For it is so easy. I've seen it happen again and again. It is so easy to get confused between the voice of the Spirit and our desires, what we want to happen. Others, though, connect this anointing with baptism, which, as you look at it, would seem again a, a reasonable Conclusion, And then this is developed by some a little bit who then go on to connect this anointing not so much with baptism itself but with pre-baptismal teaching. Something that as the early church moved on more and more began to precede baptism. And they would, would claim support for their view from particularly verse 24 there where it says, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And then in verse 27, underlining this, the anointing that you receive from him remains in you. So the anointing then was seen to be connected with what was heard in the beginning, with that original 
pre-baptismal teaching. Now, for what it's worth, I actually don't think we have to make a choice here. But rather, that all that we've mentioned, and more besides, may well, I think, be included in what John means by anointing here. And the reason why I say this is because the word that's translated here, anointing, in our Bibles, is not a common New Testament word, only used here. But it was a word that was in common use among those false teachers John was writing against. Now, now we know that from fragments of their writing that are still in existence. We know that. So you see, as John uses this word, their word, what he's doing is he's kind of parodying, he's, he's poking fun at these men and what they taught. So what did they then mean by the anointing? Well, their anointing was the claimed spiritual kind of mystical experience by which they said you gained entrance into their group and into their deeper knowledge and experience of God. Now put that together, and in that context then, what I believe John is actually getting at when he talks of the anointing is the Christian's initial conversion experience by which we gain entry into Christ. What he's saying here then is, is that in your conversion, which includes repentance, faith, the gift of the Spirit, pre-baptismal teaching, baptism, and all rooted in the grace of God, in these, you had then a genuine experience, a genuine anointing of the Lord. So now then, judge any further spiritual experiences that are urged on you in the light of that experience. And if these experiences contradict that experience, if these experiences contradict that basic foundational Christian teaching, then no matter how spectacularly these experiences might be dressed up and choreographed and presented to you, you can, with a clear conscience, reject them because they are not of God. Roy Clements comments here that John is appealing here to us as Christians to live in the light of that initial experience by which we found God's grace and not to be seduced by the occult quest for new experiences. God has nothing more to give us than Christ. And he gave us to him at conversion. All our spiritual development is a deepening of that relationship which has been given to us. That's our first test then. The test of experience. The second test I believe we find here in these verses is the test of doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, I'm not going to say too much here because we've already touched on this tonight and in, in past weeks. The importance of doctrine. 
and above all the importance of keeping central, of never losing our focus on the essential doctrines of the Bible, especially relating to Christ, relating to his person as God and man, relating to what he's achieved for us on the cross. And anything that takes away from this has to be rejected. If possible, lovingly rejected, but also firmly and definitely rejected. Well, there is one other test that I want us to look at, one other test that will help us if we do it right to decide whether or not something is of Christ or antichrist, and that is what I'd call the test of culture. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now what John's basically saying here is that that genuine believers always swim at least a little bit against the tide of popular culture, of what are perhaps widely accepted values and standards and behavior. And we have to, because where the standards and attitudes of men in our day, the culture of our day, stands against the eternal truth of God, well, we have got to stand where God stands. But you see, false teachers, to the contrary, are so often so very ready to accommodate themselves to the world and, and what's going on in the world, to fit in with the world, because they don't stand for God. And because of that, they're always ready to adjust their teaching to suit the prevailing values and culture. And certainly, that's what these men in John's day did. For starting from a beginning in orthodox Christianity, they manufactured a gospel that as well as denying Christ, that made no mention of personal sin, that had no requirement of repentance. That's music to the ears of this world. But, you know, this is a continuing problem, I think, for the church. How do we deal today with the culture we are placed in? With the norms, the standards and practices that are widely accepted in the society that we're part of and that more and more stand against the Christian gospel. Well, let's be clear that there are things in our culture that are widely accepted that are in harmony with Christ. A lot that's to do with our Christian heritage. There are some things in our culture that are spiritually neutral and that can even be redeemed for Christ. But there are also other things in our culture that stand against Christ, that are anti-Christ. But how do we deal with this? How do we live in our culture? How do we live in our world while not being unnecessarily negative and yet at the same time remaining faithful to God? How do we do it? Well, here I believe we go back again to what something I've mentioned over the last two or three weeks, to what Paul calls us to do in 1 Corinthians 9.22 when he calls us, like him, 
to follow in his example, and to be all things to all men. That is, I believe, to adjust where we need to, our means and methods of expressing our faith, to relate to the society, to the culture that we're part of. But this, at the same time, as we do this, in doing this, at the same time, not to give an inch as far as the essentials of faith, our faith, are concerned. Now let me here just share with you something that I believe has got some bearing on this. Kind of some, I heard ones that, that I think has got a number of things to say about how as Christians we should or shouldn't relate to our culture. And it concerns Tony Campolo, a tremendously effective communicator whose heart for the needy I've got absolutely no doubt about, but I do have a growing concern about aspects of his theology. But Tony Campolo is by profession a sociologist. He's an expert on how society operates. And on one occasion, I was there when he spoke in Glasgow, he commented that the secret of the current success of television in America lies in the fact that producers have learned how to mesmerize people through the process of technical change, which basically means frequently changing the image presented by using a number of different cameras operating at different angles and by rapidly changing scenes. Now, all of this began strangely when the bottom was falling out of the movie market because of the success of TV. For then a relatively unknown producer, he guaranteed against all of this happening, nobody was going to the cinema, he guaranteed that he could produce a smash hit movie using unknown actors and an almost non-existent plot, which was, in fact, taken from an old western. And he could do all of this by using technical change. That film lasted two and a half hours, pioneered technical change, and it was a box office sensation. It was Star Wars. That's what it was. However, you see, here's the problem. This technique is now fed back into American television and has actually now become very much a part of their news service in the United States. In fact, Tony Compose stated on that occasion that a UK news presentation would be unable to hold an American audience as they can hold the scene in the UK to one reporter for as long as two minutes. Whereas in the US... Every news item is covered, usually within 15 seconds, with often a number of different images being covered in that time, flashed up. But the impact of this, though, can be pretty scary. And a classic example of this occurred during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, who was himself a master at media manipulation. Because during his time in office, the US Marine barracks in Lebanon were bombed. And this put Reagan in a, a difficult position. But then he came out on television and said that it was the government's fault for sending them there. Them, not him. Very few people seem to perceive that Ronald Reagan actually, effectively, was the government. 
You see, technical change, learning to accept what was just flashed up before them, had made the majority seemingly incapable of doing any kind of in-depth, critical analysis. Now, now what's interesting though and scary here is what Tony Campolo has then gone on to do and to say regarding this. That is, understanding what's going on, his own preaching is now an exercise in technical change. For based on this sociological study, he's decided that people today find doctrinal preaching difficult to cope with. They find it boring because of the way that society has trained and formed their mind. And so he's decided to accommodate this by adapting, adopting sorry, a style of preaching that's actually all about technical change. It's all about scene changing. And if you've heard Tony Campolo preach, well, you'll understand what we're talking about. Because his preaching, largely, is just story. Funny story, dramatic story, heart-rending. Story after story. Now, I want to say here, I think there is a place for that kind of preaching, and particularly for an evangelist like Tony Campolo, who's making connections with unchurched people. I think there is room for lots of different styles of preaching. But I do have a big problem with the conclusion he comes to on the basis of this. Because he writes off entirely lock, stock and barrel traditional text-based Bible preaching as being old-fashioned, irrelevant, no one wants to listen to it anymore. Well, they might not be inclined to listen because of the influence of culture. But I would say, if we pander to this, if we move over wholesale to a narrative, story-based style, which has actually been taught more and more in, in colleges, and there is room for this style, but if we move over to it wholesale, if we let people come into church and we don't ever dig into the Bible and don't ever teach them doctrine, then pretty soon what we are going to have is a biblically and doctrinally illiterate church. We're going to have a people who can only think in pictures, who are incapable of doing any kind of in-depth analysis on the teaching they are given. And when you reach that point, when as a people you've reached that point, you are ripe for picking off by false teaching. So you see, we've got to learn to use the test of culture. Meaning, is what's being taught in the church, leading the church, not just to adjust the way and the methods that it uses to express the faith, but rather, is it leading the church to abandon the essential truth that lies at the heart of the faith or no longer able to discern that truth. If it is, we need to reject that teaching for it is of Antichrist. Now, I've got to say I'm hesitant to criticise someone like Tony Campolo because he's a Christian brother with a big heart and a, a very sharp mind. But I'd also say the spirit of Antichrist is subtle. The evil one loves to work through those who otherwise are good and attractive people. And we as the church need to learn 
to be on guard. So may God make us a people who can discern truth from falsehood, who can recognize what is of Christ and what comes from Antichrist. May we learn to test for truth against experience, by doctrine, by culture and whatever else we need so that we can hear the authentic word of God to his people. Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for what you teach us in your word. We thank you for the anointing that we have in Jesus Christ, for that conversion experience and all that we received in our conversion and in those early days of our Christian faith, because that's the foundation that you call us to measure everything else against. Lord, help us too to to take doctrines seriously, especially central doctrines relating to Jesus, relating to the authority of your word, relating to the, the nature of the cross. Lord, help us to take these things and to hold to them and never ever to let them be threatened or let them go. And Lord, help us to test our culture, not just to accept what's going on around us because it's popular or it's attractive, Lord, help us to test and to see if it's making us into the people you've called us to be, mature, discerning believers who can tell truth from falsehood and who are always seeking to grow in the essential things of our faith. Lord, make us that kind of people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.